This is incredible and causes a sense of wonder. But here's the only difference between the movies about the mafia and Jesus is that in the movies, the undercover cops have one goal, and that's to go in to expose them for who they really are, to judge them guilty, and ultimately to make them pay for what they have done. But Jesus totally turns that around. See, he hangs out with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, not to expose their shame, but ultimately to expose the inner workings of their heart, to judge them not guilty and not to make them pay, but he himself becomes the payment on their behalf. He liberates them. He gives them new life. There's no shame. There's no fear. They are drawn to him. They're not afraid of him. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Live Church Canton podcast. My name is Sam. Thanks for listening. Uh, Merry Christmas. Christmas is coming just a few days. Um, wanted to let you guys know that we do have Christmas Eve services this Tuesday. Uh, the service times are 2.30, 4, and 5.30 p.m. Um, encourage you to come on out to that. We will actually have a podcast episode of the Live Church uh, Christmas Eve church service, Christmas Eve services. And um, there's a special intro that I'm excited to share with you guys. So make sure to tune in for that episode. And here's Jared with uh, his, his message on Rahab. Enjoy. Welcome to Life Church, everybody. My name is Jared, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, before we go any further, I just want to name the elephant in the room. Me and Stephen are given state-issued shirts. Um, we were told, we, yeah, we texted each other uh, this morning to make sure that we were wearing the same shirt. I know all of you were thinking of it, so that's, uh, that's I'm just going to name that. Uh, welcome to Life Church. We're glad you're here. If you're new here, maybe this is your first time, thanks for joining us. Merry Christmas to you all, and for anybody who's watching online, our Facebook live stream, uh, thank you for joining us. Merry Christmas to you, wherever you are, if you're with family. Uh, we're glad to be together. And uh, because it's Christmas, it's, uh, we're just a couple days away now, uh, we have been in a series throughout this whole month uh, that is Christmas-themed. Now, if you've been with us, it might have felt like a little surprising. Actually, maybe doesn't feel initially like a Christmas series. And we've called this series, In Wonder, The Improbable Journey Toward Christmas. And the journey that we've been looking at has actually included the lineage of Jesus. So the, the journey that leads to Jesus, the family of origin, if you will, in Jesus's line. And it's quite improbable. It's quite chaotic, actually. We specifically picked out some names in the lineage to talk about uh, some of these people's stories. And if you've been here, uh, you've heard stories about Rehoboam. He's a bad dude, a bad leader, uh, does not use wise counsel to make decisions, just a horrible human being, and actually changes the trajectory of the Israelites, the people of God. And then last week, if you were here, we heard a story about Judah and Tamar, as well as Onan and Hira, some very weird, sketchy stuff going on. Uh, in fact, Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. It's just a bad, uh, very uncomfortable story. It's a little odd. And I, I got to thinking, uh, I grew up in church. I'm just curious, how many of you, raise your hand, grew up in church and maybe you went to Sunday school? How many of you, if you went to Sunday school, you learned stories through what's called a flannel graph? Anybody? looks something like this, right? Uh, you didn't want to read the story, so you just imagined it by looking at pictures of these pieces of flannel that were cut out characters uh, from the Bible so that you could understand the story. I don't know about you, but I don't remember hearing or seeing the story of Judah and Tamar in my Sunday school class. That would be a little awkward, would it not? 
right? Like the teacher saying, okay, so and Judah went to Tamar. You know what, let's just talk John 3.16. God so loved the world. That would just be... Uh, so this is weird, right? We're looking at these stories, and if you're newer to the Bible and you're trying to understand the baby Jesus and all of the images that you get conjured up as it comes to Christmas, those are not the stories that you necessarily go to to think about Christmas. It's a bit uh, improbable, and it leaves us in a sense of wonder. If you're newer to this series, you're just checking us out now for the first time, we started off the series talking about wonder, because uh, wonder is often uh, a word that we ascribe to Christmas. We're, we're left in a sense of wonder in the Christmas season, and Nathan, our lead pastor, talked about this story of wonder that he had as a kid around Christmas time, and it was specifically around things, around presents, and a very specific present that Nathan wanted. Uh, the present that he was so in wonder of, an amazement of, and for, was a Nintendo 64 when he was a kid. And so this is what he wanted, and he was in wonder about it. Now, I have some good news for you, because we were able to obtain video footage of Nathan opening up his Nintendo 64. It's actually not Nathan. I so wish it was. Uh, some of you have seen that video before and you're like, no, that can't be Nathan. Or maybe it is. It actually, actually, that is how I imagined Nathan as a kid, right? Like all kinds of passion and just never holding back. No, is that, is that what wonder is? Is it wonder for presents? Is it wonder for things? Is that what the wonder of Christmas is all about? Things, Christmas lights, presents, Christmas trees, getting together with family even. Is that what it's about? Right? And, I, and I get it if it is. I get that. I, I get that we would be uh, enamored and in wonder of the things of Christmas because they're, they're right here and now. We can touch them. We can feel them. We can sense them, right? And we can play with them even. Uh, and so even to begin to talk about some baby that's born 2,000 years ago, let alone talking about his lineage and the family, the chaotic family that came before him, feels a little disconnected from what we experience in the here and now. And so to be in wonder about this story from 2,000 years ago and, and beyond feels disconnected. And I get it. I get it. So what comes to mind for you when you hear that word, wonder? What do you normally associate with wonder? Is it sort of the things that make us go, ooh, and ah, sort of this positive, inspiring feeling? Because in all honesty, as we've been looking at these stories, it's been a whole lot less ooh and ah and much more ew, oh, gross, right? It's, it's been more on the improbable side. In fact, we were talking as a staff in these last couple of weeks, we're like, maybe we should have called this series something different. Maybe we should have called it Improbable Christmas or Messy Christmas or Rated R Christmas for that matter. And so we're going to continue with this theme of wonder through the sense of improbability 
as we look at yet another story of scandal. Today we're going to look at a story that involves espionage, it involves a prostitute, and it involves lies and bribery, all of the things that get us in the mood for Christmas, am I right? So what we're going to do, we're going to look at just one verse in Matthew, and then we're going to go back to a story. And I said Matthew, and you're like, hold on, I thought, I thought Nathan was asking us to read the book of Luke. And yes, definitely read the book of Luke, specifically maybe if you're together with your family and maybe you tend to read the Christmas story or you want to start a new tradition, read the story of Christmas as, uh, according to the gospel narrative of Luke. Uh, but what you're going to notice, or what you maybe already have noticed if you've started to read, is some slight differences in the name that we're going to look at today. This name actually doesn't show up in the gospel lineage uh, that Luke portrays, but Matthew records it. And there's a reason for that, just a little side note. Matthew and Luke both record the lineages of Jesus. And Matthew has a very specific intention in mind. He's writing to primarily a Jewish audience. And so the lineage that he's writing is, is more so the legal lineage per the Jewish custom. But Luke is writing to a much more Gentile audience. And so he basically records the genetic lineage. Both of, of, of them are, are accurate, but they're, they're trying to achieve different things. And so what we see in Matthew is not a name that we would see in Luke. I'll read it for you. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. We're going to talk about Rahab today. And Rahab, as you can imagine, per how this series has gone, has a much bigger story to tell. Kind of a scandalous story, actually. And so if you want to follow along in that story, we're going to be going all the way back to the Old Testament to Joshua chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you're new to church, that's entirely okay. Uh, we always have the words on the screen, so you're able to follow along in that way. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. No, I'm not swearing, that's not the scandal, that's just how you pronounce it. <laughs> Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. All right, right out of the gate. We've got espionage and we've got a prostitute. Uh, so the spies have been sent by Joshua to go and look at the land that they're uh, supposed to be taking over. And so that's why they're going. They're going to do a little bit of reconnaissance. And the first thing that they do is they stop at the home of a prostitute. That seems a little odd. That seems maybe even a little bit shady. Now, we don't have any indication uh, for us to assume that they utilized her services necessarily, but either way, this is sort of a, a strange way to start the story. Let's continue to read and see what happens. Verse 2, the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. All right, so now the king's involved, which is a little weird, right, right out of the gate, that the king would know about this situation. He's given a message. Uh, now, just to clarify, the king, uh, don't think of it so much like the images that we normally get with kings. This is just the king of Jericho. It's probably more like a mayor, a town supervisor. Jericho is actually not that large. It's just a small city, and it's surrounded by walls, and he's over uh, the town of Jericho, the city of Jericho. But he gets word about these spies, and immediately he goes to Rahab. And so now we can start to make a little bit of cultural assumptions about Rahab's, uh, the nature of her work, if you will. 
And not just the fact that she's a prostitute, but she's, we're going to find out, she lives on the outer edges of the city. She's probably seen a lot of the comings and goings of the city. Different travelers and business people coming to do business, to conduct business in, in a variety of different ways, and they're probably utilizing her services, and they're probably sharing things about what they're doing. And so maybe that's actually why the spies went to this person, because they think, well, maybe they can get some intel from Rahab. The king... He's no dummy. He knows who to go to. He knows who has a little bit of the town gossip. So he, too, goes to Rahab. That's his first instinct. He wants to understand a little bit about what's going on. He goes to Rahab. Well, of course, I'm sure she's going to turn them in because what does she care, right? Let's read on. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. You can go after them quickly. You might catch up with them. But actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So the city, surrounded by walls, uh, you enter in probably only through one gate, maybe two, depending on the size of the city. And the gate is shut, and the pursuers have gone after these spies, which is an indicator that they're not going to be coming back in just a couple hours. They're, they're going to be out for a very long time, which is going to set up this next scene. But one of the things I want to point out here is she lies. She, she lies to the king of Jericho. What's with that? Why would she do that? What's in it for her? Why would she lie to the king of Jericho, the person that's the most powerful in the town and could probably have her killed for doing something like this. Why would she risk this? Is this like, a, like an act of courage, right? Like is she just being a hero? And before we go there right away, I think sometimes we tend to think, well, of course, this is in the Bible, and so she's being godly, and she's protecting the people of God, and she's being a hero. Is, is that what's going on? Is she lying for the benefit of others? And is this one of those moments where actually lying is, is okay? I think of it like this. I, a couple of years ago, I got an opportunity to go to Israel for a study trip. One of the places that we visited was a place called Yad Vashem, which was Israel's version in Jerusalem, the Holocaust Museum. And it was powerful to go and just to see and experience all of the different things uh, from their perspective, from the Israel perspective. But in addition to that, they had a little place called a Gentile Cemetery, and it was all these places, uh, stone, stones and um, different uh, uh, things to commemorate the non-Jewish people who had aided Jews during the Holocaust. You can actually see the, the stone that says Oscar Schindler from Schindler's List. It's powerful. But then also you can read about some of the stories of the people that are honored in this Gentile cemetery, and many of them risked their lives and even in some cases lost their lives to hide Jews in their basements, in their attics, in their cellars, in their barns, whatever they could do, to ultimately lie to the Nazis, potentially lose their lives for the sake of these people. Is that what Rahab is doing? She's not an Israelite. What does she care? And yet she protects these men. What's her motivation here? Why does she care? Why would she lie? And why at such a high cost? 
Let's read on in verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Now we get the bribery. We get her real motivation. She's afraid. She's afraid to die. This is her motivation. This is why she hides the spies and lies to the king about it. She sees the writing on the wall. She sees this coming. She's, because of the nature of her work, she kind of knows how the world works. She's probably interacted with a lot of different people and has heard about or seen different things that are going out in the world, and she's heard stories about what their God, Yahweh, is up to. She probably worships another God or maybe no God at all, but she knows about this God, the God of the Israelites, Yahweh. He seems to be powerful, And in fact, Joshua and his armies are coming and they're going to obliterate us. She sees the writing on the wall and she's out to strike a deal for her own life. She's out to save herself and her family. This is her motivation. I don't think she's hiding them just out of the goodness of her heart or because she's trying to do something nice for the lone travelers. No, she's she's out for herself. And she does acknowledge God. She does say, this God, your God, Yahweh, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. But again, let's not be too quick to deify her and to make her into a hero. It's not as though she's calling out to God and acknowledging God and all his goodness and holiness and saying, now I want to serve this God or I have a repentant heart and I want to leave my sinful ways. Uh, To illustrate it a little bit better in our modern context, let me just say it this way. She's probably not going to be signing up for New Life Weekend anytime soon to get baptized, okay? That's not her motivation. She just wants to live. It's a bit self-centered, actually. But I wonder, how many of us approach God out of fear and our desires are more about us? What God can do for me? that maybe God is more like Santa Claus, to just give me what I want so that I can live. Maybe we might think that Rahab has a lack of spiritual maturity here. We'll talk more about that in just a second, but let's see how the spies respond. I saved you, now you save me. This is what the spies say in verse 14. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we'll treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. They agree to the plan. They're cool with the bribe. They're all right with it. 
And so they agree to what she has asked. They're going to save her when they ultimately come in and decimate the city. And, and sure enough, they do. We find out in the rest of the story that they save Rahab and her family. And she's good to go. And because of this, because they agree to this plan, Rahab lives. And now there's no more of her people left. She eventually gets married to an Israelite named Salmon who we read about in Matthew chapter 1. Now, interestingly enough, Salmon is part of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Judah. Judah is who we talked about last week. All of this is interconnected and interwoven in very intricate and intentional ways. All of this is, is leading somewhere. No matter how messy and broken and chaotic it seems, all of it is somehow interconnected and interwoven and leading us to somewhere. And eventually where it's leading is to Jesus. It's going toward Jesus because ultimately what happens is because Rahab lives and she marries Salmon, she becomes part of the lineage of Jesus. Out of all of this, this massive scandal, we've, get, we've got espionage, We've got lies, we've got a prostitute, and we've got bribery. Merry Christmas. But it leads to Jesus. Does that cause you a sense of wonder about the Christmas story? About how we get to Jesus on Christmas? See, we don't believe that there's a sense of wonder in the journey towards God because it causes us to go ooh and ah and it's all neat and tidy and wrapped up with a nice neat bow and it's all pretty and clean and, and put together. No, we are amazed by God. We're in wonder of God because of what God is willing to do to become like us, to enter into our brokenness and into our chaos and into our mess, to take on flesh to be a broken human being, the flesh of Jesus, but ultimately so that he can identify with us. He can liberate us and ultimately he can bring us new life. And that journey to Jesus is messy and gross and weird and scandalous and chaotic. It is improbable. Just like you and me. And yet God doesn't stop. He doesn't stop pursuing us. He doesn't stop coming to us to be with us, to identify with us, to liberate us, to give us new life because this is in his character. This is who he is. He'll use anything to be in relationship with us. He'll use anything to bring redemption to us. You could almost say it this way if you look over at the sign, if you're in this room, that God was willing to do whatever it takes and to go wherever it takes him. This is our God in Jesus. This is the Christmas story. We talked about Rahab for a little bit, and now I want to talk about how this actually impacts Jesus. What does this mean about the person of Jesus? Because ultimately, just in case you didn't know, that's who we celebrate, uh, not just on Christmas, but all year round. I don't know any songs about Rahab. We don't sing about her very often that I'm aware of. We sing about Jesus. He is the key central figure of our faith. And so I want to talk about Jesus and what that would have meant for him. And I want to do that by talking about the ancient kings of the world in his day. What would it look like to introduce a king 2,000 years ago? 
There's a specific way that you would go about introducing this new king that's about to take over, that's about to be in charge. And what you would do is you would often talk about their lineage. You would share their lineage. And oftentimes, kings in the ancient world uh, were often viewed as supernatural figures because of how their lineage was described. Uh, They were uh, goddesses or gods that were forming together with humanity, ultimately to birth this king into the world. I'll give you an example. The Roman emperor at the time when Jesus was born is Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus. One of the titles given to him is the Latin phrase divi filius, which means son of a god. This This is a title that Caesar Augustus actually gives himself. How arrogant do you have to be to call yourself son of a God? But I want to be clear, son of God or son of a God is not a new term when Jesus shows up on the scene. But how does Jesus get introduced? Well, there's a lineage. It's all kinds of broken and messed up people, but also what do we know about Jesus? Well, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Divine properties. And born of the Virgin Mary. This teenage, poor, refugee girl who births this king into the world. A different kind of king. And later he is referred to as son of God. Divi Filius. Can you imagine being in the first century? Knowing what Caesar Augustus is like, and all of the power that he has, he could kill you with a snap of a finger, and he calls himself the Son of God, and now we've got the little baby Jesus, who's also considered the Son of God. Could you imagine the tension of that in the first century? See, to call Jesus Son of God is actually a political statement. Some of you come to church and you say, well, I don't come to church to be political. If you call Jesus Son of God, that is a political statement in the first century. That's a political claim. Because what you're saying is that Caesar is not the son of God. Jesus is. It's a different kind of king in the ancient world. Also, when kings are introduced in the ancient world, they would talk about many of their accomplishments to describe what this king is like. This king has gone off to a distant land and to take over, and they've uh, done it by military might and power, and they've defeated a foreign empire, a foreign enemy. This is what they would do. Well, what do we know about Jesus' accomplishments? Well, he hasn't even been born yet on Christmas. He's, he's just coming into the world. He hasn't done a thing. He's born in scandal uh, from Mary and Joseph. That story in and of itself is a little bit of a scandal. In fact, if you come on Christmas Eve, you're going to hear a little bit about the scandal of that story. He's born into poverty. The, Mary and Joseph, they have no wealth to their name whatsoever. They haven't really accomplished anything for that matter. They're sort of unnamed, unknown people. In fact, all of their people, for most of history, the Jewish people have been majorly oppressed. And this is what Jesus is born into. There's really no accomplishments to his name or to his family. If there's any accomplishments, it's more of this prophetic imagery of what will be when Jesus comes, when the Messiah comes. But the imagery is a whole lot different than what you would normally see in the ancient world with kings of that world and that culture. I'm going to give you an example. Isaiah is a prophetic book 
uh, that we read that takes place hundreds of years before Jesus shows up on the scene. And this is what it says in chapter 2, verse 4, that he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. To you and I, that might not seem like a whole lot, but to that world and that ancient culture, this is a radically different picture of what kingship looks like, of what leadership looks like, of what authority looks like. That's not how you establish your credibility and your force as a king, by putting down the sword and by ceasing from war and pursuing peace. That's not what peace looks like. Peace only comes by you taking over somebody else. Then you have peace, because now we're in charge. This is different. Taking your swords and beating them into plowshares, your spears into pruning hooks. Tools for war are now going to be tools for farming and cultivation, for growing something. See, all of this to the ancient world looks like weakness. Looks like vulnerability. It looks like humility or humiliation almost. And we do not like to look weak. We want to be powerful. We want to be in charge. It's a different kind of king. It's a radically different kind of king. And he's certainly a different leader. Jesus is a different leader than Joshua who comes with his armies and comes with destruction. Jesus comes in a very different way. This is how God chooses to move on Christmas. A radically different kind of king. Now, if you're in the ancient world and you want to start a movement around this guy, Jesus, and you're going to try to get people to follow him, knowing what you know about the ancient world, wouldn't you want to hide the lineage, right? Like, wouldn't you want to get rid of all of the messy, broken stories of the past? Wouldn't you want to put those away and say, no, 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 let's find the stories that talk about all the good things that have happened, all the powerful things that have happened, Right? Wouldn't you want to hide that lineage and wouldn't you want to hide the prophetic imagery of him pursuing peace and laying down swords? You'd want to hide that stuff if you were to start a movement around this person, Jesus. Because all that other stuff looks like weakness. But this is how God moves. This is how God moves on Christmas. That's why there's wonder and improbability on Christmas because he's a completely different kind of king than the world would normally expect. Than you and I even sometimes want. Sometimes we want a political, powerful figure to be in charge, to take over. Jesus doesn't do that. He takes over in a different way. Let's see how this pans out for Jesus just a little bit more. Seems like an appropriate time for me to talk about movies about the mafia, right? Obviously, that's where you were going. No, this is what I think of. I, uh, specifically movies like Donnie Brasco and The Departed. I, I, I enjoy these movies for some sick reason, I guess. Anyway, the stories of Donnie Brasco and the, the Departed are stories of these undercover cops who infiltrate the mafia to ultimately, you know, turn them in and, and, and hopefully put them in jail. Uh, and, and in their doing this, uh, they have to they have to infiltrate in a very specific way. They have to find a way to be either connected already to the family or they have to do something that the mob would approve of in order to be accepted. 
Well, the reason I think about that is because I think about what Jesus does. And I think about the people that he ends up hanging out with. In fact, he gets accused and ridiculed for hanging out with certain kinds of people. You know what those kinds of people are like? Tax collectors, corrupt, notorious sinners. You know who else? Prostitutes. He has an in with these people. Is it because he's connected, if you will? He's he's got connections in his lineage. He's kind of connected to the family in a unique way. He's got Rahab in his blood, a prostitute. And all throughout the New Testament, we see that Jesus is constantly called out because he is constantly hanging out with people that aren't normally accepted. Sort of looked down upon, the outcasts, the downtrodden, the tax collectors, the sinners, and the prostitutes. This is how this pans out in the life of Jesus, who is the Son of God, a different kind of Son of God than what the world was normally used to. This is incredible and causes a sense of wonder, but here's the only difference between the movies about the mafia and Jesus is that in the movies, the undercover cops have one goal, and that's to go in to expose them for who they really are, to judge them guilty, and ultimately to make them pay for what they have done. But Jesus totally turns that around. See, he hangs out with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, not to expose their shame, but ultimately to expose the inner workings of their heart, to judge them not guilty and not to make them pay, but he himself becomes the payment on their behalf. He liberates them. He gives them new life. There's no shame. There's no fear. They are drawn to him. They're not afraid of him. They welcome him in. They accept him. See, there's a subtle difference between what we see in Jesus and what we see in Joshua. Joshua comes with armies to bring destruction. He's the leader that Rahab is terrified of. They are melting in fear of, but Jesus is different. In fact, sometimes Jesus is referred to as the better Joshua, the better Joshua. Joshua, the Hebrew name is Yeshua, which the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua is Jesus. You see the connection? Jesus is the better Joshua. See, where Joshua comes to bring about destruction, Jesus comes in humility. Where Joshua comes to kill and destroy the enemies, Jesus comes and actually says, love your enemies. And Rahab is terrified of Joshua. I want to ask you, how do you approach God? How do you view God? Is it more like like Rahab? The Old Testament prostitute who is melting in fear, not sure what this God Yahweh is like and could ultimately destroy me. And so I just want to survive. So maybe I'll try a prayer. Maybe I'll read a scripture. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll even come to church because I'm afraid of what, life might look like without God. Is is that how we approach God? Out of almost kind of a self-centeredness and out of fear. And I'm not even saying that that's wrong. I think it's actually a good place to start. 
Because I think all of us in our humanity are naturally afraid. We live constantly in fear and in self-centeredness. And God will work with whatever your motivation is. But there is a movement for those of us who have been part of this church, who have been part of the faith. There is a time that has to begin to develop. There's a maturity that has to begin to develop, to not approach God out of our fear for our own self-centered survival, but instead to be more like those New Testament sinners and prostitutes who are drawn to God because of his grace and his mercy and his love for us. To be drawn in, to not be afraid to make mistakes, but to be in wonder of his love for us. The fact that God would come not as a military power to take everybody out, but to come as a weak baby to ultimately soften our hearts and to destroy the brokenness within us, but ultimately to bring about liberation and new life. So I want to be clear here. I'm not trying to present two different gods, God of the Old Testament and God of the New, New Testament. That's, that's not the point here. There are some differences between what we see in the leader of Joshua and what we see in King Jesus, absolutely. And how people respond to God tends to shift and change and evolve over time throughout the Bible, throughout the whole entire narrative. I don't want to make those as though, as though they are two different gods. See, God is consistent all throughout. The themes of God, the activity of God is consistent. See, what we see with Rahab who allows these spies to leave, to be saved and to go down the window, out the window and down the rope to be saved. What Jesus does is he ultimately goes to a cross so that you and I and all of humanity can be liberated. We can be saved as well. And in the same way, the spies who leave and they go into hiding for three days only to emerge and to come back and to bring new life to Rahab and her entire family, we see the same theme with God in Jesus because while he goes to a tomb for three days, he emerges, he resurrects himself by the Spirit of God so that you and I can participate in new life as well. God is consistent. His themes, his character, his activity to save us, to liberate us, to provide us forgiveness of our sin and to move us toward new life. This is who he is. This is why we are drawn in the wonder of Christmas. I want to invite you to stand if you are able. For some of you, this is maybe a new message, a new version of the Christmas story that you never heard of before. And maybe some of you are like, I don't know that I feel connected to that Jesus. One of the things the Bible talks about is inviting you into that family, grafting you into the family tree. God wants you to be a part of the family. And here's the thing. Nothing that you have done or left undone is unredeemable by God. It's all redeemable. God will use whatever your motivations are for approaching him, whatever you have done and left undone, he will use anything to bring you into his presence. And so I want to invite you into that right now, to say yes to King Jesus. Because that's the best gift you could participate in on Christmas.
And so you might pray something like this. God, I want to be part of your family. I don't want to live in fear anymore. I don't want to live in my own self-centered ways where I'm constantly just seeking other people's approval or my own pleasure. God, you're the only thing, you're the only person that can truly love me and truly make me into the person that you've ultimately called me to be. And so I want to follow you with my life. Bring me liberation, forgiveness, and lead me on the path toward new life. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to find out more information about Life Church Canton or other churches in the Life Church Network, text I'm New to 734 349 3475 or fill out the form linked in the show notes below and someone from the church will reach out to you with more information. If you came to Life Church for the first time this past weekend, we would love to know about it. We believe that life isn't meant to be lived in isolation, but we want to connect with you and learn to live like Jesus in community together. If you want to email the show, you can do that at podcast at lifechurchcanton.org. You can subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, please share it with a friend and leave us a review. Once again, my name is Sam Parham, and you've been listening to the Life Church Canton podcast. Have a great week, everybody.